0: Well, you as a taxpayer are about to subsidize the university education of approximately 1.9 million, mainly middle and upper middle class students, and it's anywhere between 59% in B.C. to about 65% in Alberta, 83% in Quebec. But do you have any idea how that's money spent? Do you know what's being taught on campus? More to the point, what's not being taught? Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. Money Talks is brought to you by Solera Club. Solera Club is a royalty-based investment. No fees included in this. Money comes straight to you, first in line. And for more information, it's in the tech area. More information, go to soleraclub.com. But despite the major funding commitment to universities, post-secondary education, most of us only have a kind of broad idea where the money goes. Because universities receive only a fraction of the attention that public schools do. I feel comfortable that saying, we give a great example out in the West Coast, that they had the coverage of the sudden resignation of the president of UBC, Arvind Gupta. Well, it got more coverage, actually significantly more, than the combined coverage in the last year of everything else to do with universities, what's being taught on campus, etc. I'm always fascinated by what people do and don't care about and it's clear they don't care about what's going on in our universities. Of course, what's going on academically is is varied and diverse, but there's a troubling trend in specific subject areas that should alarm all of us. Years ago, I joined a lot of other people, but observing that K-12 and post-secondary education was morphing from teaching critical skills, critical thinking skills, to in a, uh, advocacy in a wide variety of areas of what's called the social progressive agenda. But there's plenty of evidence that this critique extends deep into the university culture too. And it's got the attention of some courageous educators who actually now are concluding that that advocacy approaches indoctrination in some areas. Recent column in the Wall Street Journal by former university president of saint john's college his name is john agresto and he asks in quotes why would any student spend tens of thousands of dollars and rather than see the world in all its aspects instead spend his time being indoctrinated and immersed in the prejudices of the current culture and the opinions of this tendentious professors the job of teachers is to liberate minds not to capture them I love that line. The job of teachers is to liberate minds, not to capture them. But the examples of university administrators refusing to defend free speech and views that run contrary to the current progressive agenda are many. I mean, Ottawa University's cancellation of Van Coulter and Concordia students preventing Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu from speaking. Waterloo refused columnist Christy Blatchford from speaking. But it's more than that. When I asked someone I know in the economics department, at one of uh, the universities. Why he didn't speak out against a profoundly empty gesture by faculty members who demanded that the university divest itself from all energy-related investments, he told me it wasn't worth the professional grief. I said, why was there no one to even mention the financial and economic consequences of shutting down the oil sands and the resource industry of a whole? No one to stand up and broaden the debate. Well, the answer is that they're operating in an environment of intolerance. I've heard the same thing from other academics who refuse to voice opposition, even to the most outrageous claims of the climate change extremists. That's founded on the sloppiest methodology. They just said it's not worth the professional grief. I've heard it firsthand from students. I have three kids who went through university, and I I have the good fortune of knowing so many of their friends. Well, many times they'd ask me for help on subjects like economics, economic development, taxation, government-related issues, business-related public policy issues. But here's the interesting part. The message I would get consistently when I offered up a view that was not pro-big government or pro-regulation, that was, you know, and if I dared to say anything positive about capitalism, was no way. They couldn't get a good mark unless they agreed with the teacher. Obviously, that's not always the case, but I heard it often enough to be concerned. Anti-business, anti-capitalist, anti-freedom dogmas are the latest of the progressive agenda to infect our university campuses. Boy, in the States, I mean, there's so many examples there. Wall Street Journal's Kimberly Strassel points out that the efforts are actually organized. There's a group spearheaded by the American Federation of Teachers, Greenpeace, and a group called Forecast the Facts. That's a green or a environmental group that's focusing on climate change. But their mission is to prevent research by professors who don't subscribe to the total, 100% climate change agenda. As Strassel noted, the group's website actually provides a campus organization guide. Think about this. With instructions for how to expose and undermine any college thought that works against, in quotes, progressive values. Their stated allies are liberal professors, students, like-minded alumni. There's an example that Strassel cites of the political theory professor, Ross Emmett. Now, he's the director of the Michigan Center for Innovation and Economic Prosperity. Well, he has his group together, the students together, to discuss different kind of ideas on politics and the economy. And he even spent the first two weeks talking about Marx, but it wasn't enough They wanted to shut them down. Sadly, I'm not overstating it when I say this kind of tactic is right out of a totalitarian handbook. Free thought is always dangerous to the status quo. That's why free speech, open dialogue isn't tolerated by a totalitarian regime. But as usual, the majority of Canadians kind of shrug with this one. Well, I'm one Canadian who thinks it's an incredible disservice to our students. It is bad for society. I don't need everyone to agree with everything I say but they sure need it in their case. Limiting free speech to not encourage all points of view, to not encourage critical thinking in the service of a specific dogma is dangerous. Frederick Nietzsche famously said, in quotes, the surest way to corrupt a youth is to instruct him to hold in higher esteem those who think alike than those who think differently. Well, as I say, it's a trend that I find very troubling. You're spending hundreds of millions of dollars every year subsidizing an education. My point, my starting point is we should at least care what's going on there. I'll take a break. I'll come back. Top three stories that smart people are talking about, including one, the most important story, you didn't hear about this week rob levy joins me in a moment and before i'm done here i'm going to just uh i'll share with you in just a couple of minutes i just thought one of the most clueless silly quotes on politics it comes out of the states it was this week wait till you hear it i'll take a break come back you're listening to money talks on the chorus radio network i was just reviewing i'll give it to you in a couple of seconds here i was just reviewing though <laughs> this headline that sort of has a political bend that came out of the states but i'm going Really, could you think of anything people care less about? I'll do that. Plus, in a moment, I'm going to give you, hey, big debate about whether a uh, university or even K-12 to has a responsibility in preparing our kids directly for employment. That debate's still raging. What I'll tell you, though, is the best Uh, courses to take if you do indeed want a job directly out of a post-secondary education and who gets paid the most i'll do that in just a couple of minutes but first off rob levy is with me right now top three stories that smart people are talking about but we're going to start with the top story of the week that you probably didn't hear about rob what is it
1: well it's petrobras mike Uh, brazil's state-owned oil company is the new king of the junk bond market
0: well, let's let's go into the Petrobas first of all is is their huge kind of oil company and uh, this plays right into our big thing on this show for a number of years is that the fourth quarter of 2000 15 is going to augur in the next stage of the debt crisis and as we came more in toward this year i said i think it's going to be in emerging markets and greece is just going to give us the hint but to me and china's obviously now coming onto the front burner this is another part of that story i mean brazil was the leading light when they always said about or brazil and china you know the big emerging market boom
1: they were and a very interesting aspect of the story is about beginning this year moody's downgraded Petrobras to junk status but following what we were talking about last week was brazil going to be downgraded by standard and poor another rating agency they yep. were and the following day petrobras was downgraded as well uh, to junk status so now two rating agencies give this firm fifty six billion dollars of outstanding debt in a two trillion dollar junk bond market so by far the biggest junk issuer in the market and with huge ramifications because now when you have multiple credit agencies rating agencies giving you junk status it means the pension funds the institutional investors that held your debt can't hold it anymore. They have restrictions on the quality of the debt that they can hold, so they're going to have to go out and sell it. And it's a lot of debt that has to go find a new home now.
0: I said the big question at the beginning of the year. I said the big question. To me, it was a given we were getting into the sovereign debt crisis. So I said the number one question is basically going to be who lent the money. And that's going to be, that's why this stuff is important. A lot of people sort of, it just kind of goes over their head and who cares. Well, we saw how important China was, you know, over the last six to eight weeks. And Brazil is another one, you know, as I say, one of the leading lights of that emerging market. And to see them go down to debt bonds, sta- uh, sorry, uh, junk bond status uh, is, is another major warning sign that I think there's a lot more to come.
1: I agree with you completely, and I mean, that's from the credit issuing side. Just watch them, too, on the oil and exploration side. This is a company now that has a $130 billion reduction in capital spending because their interest costs are going to grow up. And also, you'll like this one, Mike, their budget that they released earlier this year, they were forecasting for a 3.15 real to the dollar exchange rate. Uh, On Friday, it was 3.85 real to the dollar, so just more costs to come.
0: Yeah, and, and I mean, the real is just absolutely, uh, you know, precipitous drop in its value vis-a-vis the U.S. dollar. Hey, if you're, we're Canadians, if we want to find a place that's actually cheaper than it was two and three years ago, Brazil is one of those places because their currency has fallen a lot further and faster than the Canadian dollar. Hey, what's the number two?
1: Oh, Number two, and there's a story you almost couldn't escape from this week, but it was Apple releasing their new iPhone, and I love this quote uh, from Farou- Far- Farhad Manju in-, in the New York Times, an esteemed tech writer. The iPhone's continuing dominance may not be a sure thing, but in the tech industry, it's as sure a thing as you can find right now.
0: Yeah, interesting. I, I saw the shares didn't really respond. I mean, Apple's done a brilliant job of getting the media to do its marketing for it. I mean, they didn't have to pay 10 cents in terms of marketing to talk about whether it was the iWatch when they, they launched that or, you know, or, or of course the iPhone, iPads in the past. I mean, they just get the media. They just say, Hey, guess what? We're going to make a major product announcement and the media follows suit with about a billion dollars worth of free advertising. It even makes newscasts.
1: They absolutely do. You tune on Bloomberg or CNBC and they've got live reporters coming to you from the event the whole day. But that's what's so entertaining and so fascinating about those events is they showcase all the products that they're going to release this in the upcoming year, whether it's a new iPad, whether it's a stylus pen, uh, the new MacBook or the watch, as you said. But in, in reality, it all comes back down to that one thing, and that's the iPhone device Uh, That is what brings in the lion's share of their revenue. It's something like 63% of Apple's revenue is the iPhone. And the thing is, a profit margin of about estimated 69% by, by one consultancy firm. So it all links back to the iPhone, and that's what's so important for their share performance going forward.
0: Yeah, to borrow one of those cliches, it's the old "as the iPhone goes, so goes Apple." So uh, people are going to be watching very, very closely here. Uh, the thing I, uh, you know, about tech is, you know, you're what are you about 15 minutes away from the next invention. If somebody comes through with something that's better technologically, uh, you know, appealing to the masses, you can it can be a game changer almost immediately. Apple's been dominant in that, obviously, uh, done a great job with a variety of products. The iPhone's been a big success, so people will be watching that because that's also, of course, a huge influence a lot of analysts don't like the fact that apple is sort of stalling here and maybe we saw their highs for a while back in february and that's what got them concerned about the overall market strength
1: It certainly is, but as you said, it talks about the overall market strength. I also like Apple because it does, I mean, whether it's right or not, it gives a little indication into what's going on in China right now. So, I mean, they've got earnings in September, and the iPhone sales in China have been a huge sort of tell of what's going on in that economy, and I think it's going to give a further indication.
0: Yeah, great point. Uh, Speaking of the number one story?
1: It's Barry Eschengreen, one of the world's foremost monetary economists, currency economists, don't cut off and excuse excuse the crude expression, but don't cut off a cat's tail in slices.
0: And what does he mean by that?
1: He's referring to the People's Bank of China and devaluing their currency, Mike. But what he's saying, the point he's making is uh, policymakers in China have really failed on two accords. One, mm-hmm. they could do what Western banks, central banks have done and offer the market a little guidance in what they're actually doing instead mm-hmm. of keeping it up to a bit of a mystery. But the other thing is if you're going to let your currency devalue, let it devalue. Don't trick foreign investors into thinking there could be more to go and then as a result you're going to see capital flight out of china like we are right
0: now yeah i think he makes a great point about trying to remove uncertainty we remember sort of the famous line coming out of europe i think it was july 2012 with mario draghi draghi who's the head of the european union central bank and he says He he gave all the signals he needed. We're going to do anything it takes to rescue us. You know, it would be very interesting to see if uh, the Bank of China or a major Chinese official came out and basically said the same thing. I got a feeling that may be enough, at least on the short term, to rescue the markets, at least in China. Uh, But they haven't been prepared to do it, so I think he makes a great point.
1: He absolutely does, and people almost underestimate that. As you said, Mario Draghi is the prime example. How much confidence a policymaker can give an economy just by his words alone before they even have to act. We saw Mario Draghi, as you said, two years before actually initiating quantitative easing. All he talked about was defending the euro currency, and it gave Europe enough of a boost for the time being. To Unlike China, where they just see, uh, right now it's just an exodus, exodus of cash, cash fleeing the market, their markets and the Chinese economy.
0: Uh, and as I say, uh, much more to talk about that uh, next week. We'll obviously finally get be able to finish that central bank discussion about the Federal Reserve. Will they? Won't they raise interest rates? Thank goodness, we're tired of that one. <laughs> we'll find something else. But uh, you'll be with me next week. Thanks, Rob. Great stuff. Thanks, Mike. I'll take a break. I'll come back. I'm going to start with the headline that I really thought. Talk about the media being out of touch with what people care or not care about Uh, i started my show with that today but also i'll give you the top jobs if you care about what your university education leads to directly in the job market. I'll share with what uh, what that is in terms of salary and opportunities in just a couple of minutes. Stay with us. Glad you're with us coming up. We're trying to track down Mark Faber. He's live from Thailand, one of the biggest names in the investment business. We're going to see if we can get a, get a hold of him. I know we got a shocking stat. A little more fun this week with my shocking stat. One of the greatest investment returns that I can recall over a long period of time and you'll be familiar with it. You just didn't do it. Just like me, you couldn't afford it. I'll share that with you. Okay, file this under questions. Nobody is asking. I love this. This came out of People Magazine, September 10th. And this is the headline they had. Can Chelsea Clinton and Ivanka Trump's friendship survive their parents' presidential bids? Chelsea weighs in. I thought, could anyone care less about that? that's a headline? Yeah, I I haven't been sleeping at night. I mean, Chelsea, Ivanka Trump, I mean, I hope their friendship survives. Wow. (laughs) I just love that. Okay. Talked earlier about universities. If you're worried about jobs, some people are not when they come out of university. I'm going to give you the quick where the action is. The bulk of the jobs of the top 25, 13 of them, Are in the in demand, well paid sectors of science, math, engineering, and technology. 13 of the top 25. Five more are in healthcare related. So the message is very clear. Science, math, engineering, technology, that's also reconfirmed when you look at starting salaries. If you're in science, math, technology, engineering, your starting salary is somewhere in the neighborhood of 66,000. Health, about 53,000. Coming out in business, 48,000. But well, what about arts, humanities, liberal arts? You're way down to $38,000. That's a pretty clear message there. Um, highest paid though, petroleum engineering, 170,000 when you start. Pharmacist, 151,000. Nuclear engineers, 134. Computer information scientists, 125,000. My point is, the message is very clear. If you're interested where the action is, that message is very clear science, math, tech, engineering, technology, and in healthcare related. That's where the jobs are. That's where the higher salaries are. And that's not the be all to end all, but you should have the information before you choose university if that's a concern to you. Take a break. I'll come back. Mark Faber.